Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Devjani Bhattacharya, the author of Empire and Ecology in Bengal Delta, The Making of Calcutta published by Cambridge University Press in 2019 in the series of Studies in Environment and History. Debjani Bhattacharya is assistant professor of history at Drexel University, Philadelphia. By discussing this book, we will explore the Bengal Delta, its muddy silt, marshes, and bogs to trace the making of the Calcutta city by examining law and the envi- and environmental change in colonial India. The book asks, What happens when a distant colonial power tries to tame an unfamiliar terrain in the world's largest tidal delta? This history of dramatic ecological change in the Bengal Delta from 1760 to 1920 involved land, water, and humans tracing the stories and struggles that link them together. Speaking from Philly, welcome Debjani to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you, Ahmed. This is such a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Would you like to start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up? Where you went to school? How you became interested in your field of study? And if you had any influential mentors? Oh, thank you so much. I grew up partly in Calcutta. Like I was born in uh, in a state outside of Calcutta in the cold fields, extremely dry place. And then we moved to Calcutta. And uh, I and I studied literature uh, in India uh, at Jadhapur University, and I think some of my most influential mentors came uh, were there. Uh, the kind of literary training I had, like uh, literature training, was deeply historiographical, deeply steeped, I guess, both within uh, Bengali historiography, literary historiography, and English literary historiography, which was a very special kind of training. It's not the way, I guess, uh, uh, literature training happens in U.S. uh, or even the U.K. or maybe partly in the U.K. So it it is within the colonial mold. And uh, one of the things I think uh, I learned is uh, to doubt everything I read and uh, to and I think my professor stoked doubt in how uh, how to read texts, be it a literary text, be it a historiographical text, be it news. And that was very, very influential in some ways. Um, and then, but then when I began thinking about my PhD pro- program, I decidedly wanted to move to history. Uh, and uh, and I, I chose to work from within the field of post-colonial history and subaltern studies because I thought there was a lot of a generative way of working through texts where you take the genre seriously, be it a government report or a poem. And I think in some ways, subaltern historiography taught me how to actually read these two texts together with our, and understand them and read through the tensions between these texts to construct uh, my understanding. So I studied at Jadhapur University in Calcutta. Then I first spent a year and a half in Heidelberg University. And uh, thereafter, I got, a, got, got accepted to Emory University and I worked there. And at Emory was a very interesting place because it is a very robust um, African history program and a Latin American history program. So I could not have been happier anywhere else because it was a, a great way of cross-pollinating ideas with uh, uh, colleagues and professors working in these three areas. And I learned a lot. I think it, it, it really expanded my worldview to work with uh, these three very broad literatures and uh, try to see what sort of questions have actually been answered in Latin American historiography uh, that I can uh, productively think through in my own work. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, uh, so I, uh, I went from literature to history and history to literature. I, I'm, I'm decidedly very much a historian, but I think literature has been very foundational, at least the way it is taught uh, in Jadavpur has been very, very foundational to how I read and think through the archives. Mm-hmm. And where did you do graduate training? I did my graduate training at Emory University. With uh, with Jan Pandey, Jeff Lesser, and Clifton Crace, yeah. Right. Um, so would you say that uh, 
your time spent in graduate school and before that led you to the book idea. So how did the book idea develop? What was the research process like for you? And if you can talk about the writing experience. Oh, thank you. So the book idea was interesting. You know, like when I began uh, working in the uh, on my dissertation, and this is a book that comes out of my dissertation, I wanted to answer one question. And that was very much uh, why uh, South Asian history is extremely rich historiography on property and uh, and the relationship between colonialism and property, how we went from customary law to uh, contract uh, vis-a-vis property, how that completely transformed relations between people, land and, uh, and the sovereign state, be it the company state of East India Company or, uh, or the British Raj. And of course, like you have some, some, something as seminal as Ranojit Guha's uh, rule of property in Bengal, which was like a classic uh, within South Asian historiography, but I think it's a classic within colonial historiography per se to think about the intellectual history of property. So you have that big set of literature and property. And of course, you have people like David Armitage, uh, Jennifer Pitts, everyone writing about property uh, and its relationship to empire. Uh, I was kind of struck by uh, two things. One was we did not, we, we had very large intellectual histories of property. We didn't really have much about the material history of property. Like how, how was property being uh, made in spaces where property was not uh, easily visible. And what do I mean by that is when you look at a marsh, which is untitled, whereas agrarian landscape is often titled and urban landscape is often titled, what what did you do with that? And we often th- thought these were marginal spaces. But if you go to the Bengal Delta or large parts of the Bengal presidency, so much of the landscape is that, which is six months underwater. And I, I was kind of curious and the other thing I was kind of curious about was why is it that we had such rich historiography on property within the agrarian fields, but we had very little on the urban landscape. We knew nothing practically about how urban spaces, and especially cities like Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, which is unlike some place like Delhi or Surat, which had a long history of Mughal presence, how did they basically take over fishing villages in um, uh, Bombay and turn them into company land? How did they do that in Calcutta, which was mostly a swamp and a season, like a, and a weekly market? It was not an establishment. So I was kind of, that was the question with which I sort of went to the archive. Uh, I, I should tell you something else at this point. I had been uh, for a long time since I was in uh, undergrad in Kolkata. I was uh, involved with an organization that worked on homelessness. Calcutta has a big homeless population. And I went to the archives in 2009-10 when a very big ruling came out about homelessness in India, which basically mandated the Supreme Court basically mandated the state governments and the local municipal governments that if you uh, if there are a thousand homeless in a particular area or a ward, as it is called, um, they have to build shelters. And it was at that time the uh, the government actually called upon me and some of my friends who'd been working through with this agency, Calcutta, Samar- uh, Calcutta Samaritans, to uh, do a survey and a report. I was back in India to do my archival work, and I, I should admit, a little hesitantly, I said yes. That was quite transformative because. Here I was trying to understand the land market and uh, in the archives every morning, and I think the archives shut down at 4.30, 4.45, you're literally kicked out of the West Bengal State Archives. And I would just go and then talk to the homeless people. Uh, and I think we spoke to uh, 286 families, homeless families in Kolkata over uh, seven months, uh, trying to understand what their imagination of home and property was and what I realized was there was an sh- entire shadowy world of possession, dispossession, uh, property transactions going on in within the homeless that it completely lies outside of the archive. And, uh, and there is a longer history to this. Like it's not just something that begins in the post-independence movement. So which also made me aware of the kind of questions I was asking. And I really wanted to go to the archive and find these uh, sorts of things, thinking, oh, I really want to write about homelessness, about dispossession, about how people occupy spaces, uh, how people don't get to occupy space, at what point some bodies become recalcitrant. Uh, So I went, uh, and because I was going to, it was going to be a project on property and urban historiography, 
uh, I landed up in the archive and uh, as you know, urban historiography is very much comes out of the municipal archive and a medical municipal archive, I think, in some ways, because medical topographies of cities like Calcutta, Paris, London, uh, Rabat uh, have been so central to uh, colonial urban historiography. So those were the spaces I was being sent to. And I was like, no, I actually want to read the legal archive of property disputes. So I went to look at the judicial files. And if you really start working through that, the property dispute cases are few and far between, but they start cropping up. So the first set of files I got, and this was, I remember it was in 2010, July, they were all about uh, people saying, that's not land, that's that's a drain, that's a spill channel. Now, mostly disputes about water. And I said, that's not relevant. I really wanted like a tenant's fighting with landlords or somebody getting evicted, somebody saying, your papers are not right. So I would keep sending these files back. And much of Calcutta's urban historiography has been written as an epidemiological history of draining the city. It's like, and there are two very seminal books that, that are called From Marsh to Metropolis. So I was like, okay, the city is drained. I don't, I'm not interested in writing that same drainage history of Calcutta. So I kept sending those files back and then the monsoon struck and I stepped out and I have been on this road since I was like a 13-year-old kid and I was knee-deep in water. And I was like, okay, there is something that has happened that I quite don't understand. There are tons and tons of cases about the pre- how water actually was um, sort of undoing the property regime, yet all we've written in the urban historiography is how water has been drained out of the city. So that got me thinking about what is happening. And it was at this time I was reading Matthew Hull's work on government of paper and Bhavani Raman's work also the document Raj, which made me realize there is the entire paper regime that says uh, uh, paper regime that sort of re- represents the city in a particular way. And then there is the lived history. And it was also brought to me very, very closely through my other uh, work for the West Bengal government on the homelessness. I was like, okay, there is an entire regime of property transactions that goes on that will never enter the archive. So that's when I went back and brought back all those um, water files, technically, uh, water dispute files. I started reading them very, very closely. And it took me a long time, honestly. It took me at least, I would say, three years to really understand what is the story I'm trying to tell. Uh, Because the whole idea, the way urban historiography has been written about Calcutta is about the story of drainage, drainage as a site of disciplining population. And there were all these uh, slums were kind of... um, um spaces you know the classic way sums are species of disease of cholera plague we need to bring light and we need to uh, demolish slums and build roads it's very much in that Foucauldian mold of disciplining spaces but actually that didn't happen but tons of reports were written proposing that should happen or tons of bureaucratic papers were being written produced by saying that has happened and if you go to the medical municipal archive, you see that once you start entering the judicial archive, you basically see none of that has happened and uh, no one has the money. The municipality is in public deficit. So that's exactly that was that took me almost a few years to figure out how do I actually start disagreeing with that burden of a very Foucauldian urban colonial historiography and start writing a story that is vastly different and actually speaks to my interest in understanding the question of property regime in the urban space. Thank you for sharing these insights from your field work and archival work. Um, and, and that takes us to ask, Ashley, how, how do you assess the scholarship on, or, on urban environmental history in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean? And how would you situate your book in that literature? What are your interventions? So in some ways, um, like this is how I, when I was writing, this is how, um, and I think a lot has changed since uh, my book came out in 2018 and now where I think there is a distinct urban environmental historical field has emerged. But when I was writing the book, I thought of the way um, environmental histories have primarily written about the forest and the field and of course rivers and there is the entire literature on rivers and damming and him thinking of Rohan D'Souza's work, David Gilmartin's work and then there is the distinction between forest and the field, there's the agrarian history, Uh, some environmental historians have worked especially Iftikhar Iqbal's seminal work on the Bengal Delta and on the other hand, on the forest, histories of forest are very rich in South Asia. 
yet uh, none of these were speaking to the urban uh, urban history in some ways and i didn't think i myself was speaking so much to the question of environmental history i i felt much more that i was drawing from environmental history to really understand what was going on and one of the things i felt uh, my work tried to show was you know how we how in a space where it was impossible to spaces where it was impossible to establish a property regime law became a very very central tool in doing that in helping us see land where there was no land and it was not a really a story of draining or managing or water control and those kind of kind of this this whole field of environmental technical which you know people have used to understand especially river management and water management actually falls apart when you go down to the small bogs and marshes i drew a lot from the uh, works uh, like ari kelman's work on new orleans uh, christopher muddy's uh, christopher uh, christopher uh, how why am i forgetting anyways there's the big muddy uh, i drew a lot from ted steinberg's work on law uh, slide mountain it's a very i, I really like that work and then vera kandiani's work on uh, drying uh, mexico drying the uh, uh, yeah drying mexico drying dreaming of dry land uh, and those works sort of those were the few kinds of work which i felt were trying to really helped me frame my understanding of what was going on and so one way one of the things i started understanding is how law helped us naturalize a certain idea of nature per se and what what do i mean when i say nature is within the urban space uh, marshes emerge as a natural anomaly the canals emerge or water emerges as a space of lake or canals as sites of beautification especially if you look at the modern context uh fields or um, uh, the maidan which is a 333 acres of green field which is actually the one way to access is only through the military archives surprisingly emerges as the urban lungs of the city and so in some ways the legal actually allows you to f- offers you administrative terms to define these spaces and often some of these spaces are not drained if you go to calgary in monsoon the maidan is a sheet of water and when i looked at the archive i saw colonial officials complaining what do we do with this sheet of water we actually have that was a thoroughfare where the horses would go and horses hated get, getting into that spaces so for me the question was not whether the city whether there was a technology of draining in place to drain the city but very much how law was a way to organize these spaces and uh, that relates to a new work i am doing on uh, with bhavani aditya Bhavani Raman in Toronto, Aditya Ramesh in Manchester, and Karen Coelho in Madras, where we are trying to basically look at historical maps and see how, in the map, certain water bodies disappear or the marshes disappear before they actually disappear in reality. And sometimes they still have not disappeared. But if you go to them, go and look at some of these cadastral maps, they have been erased out as land. So I wanted to really, uh, and that is one of the things I thought. Uh, i was trying to do is show the role of law or property as itself a technology in drying land as uh, the legal regime of property offering us ways to define ownership of these spaces through various categories if it's a disappeared marsh or a accreted marsh or a alluvian or a contiguous land how that sort of organized uh, entire um, uh, tax regime entire revenue regime and allowed us to sort of economize space in very distinct ways in the 20th century and <clears throat> so i end with in some ways in my book uh, uh, and we can talk about it later why is it that uh, reclamation for instance of uh, of from bombay to jakarta to singapore emerged as a form of urbanization within asian cities and it's a very, very, very and across asia you see that as a mode of urbanization and if said look there is a longer history uh, and law plays a kind of important role in doing that sort of economization of space mm-hmm. indeed yeah. uh, i would like to start talking about the book and its chapters which are five chapters with an introduction mm-hmm. and a conclusion in the introduction uh, almanic of a tidal basin the title you propose approaching and i quote you the built environment of calcutta as sedimentation of historical time silt and human design in order to write the river and the deltic ecology into the city's history so why is it important to make these connections and what are the implications for writing urban environmental history 
<clears throat> so it's interesting, you know, like <clears throat> if you start uh, working with urban history, and this was the challenge I faced, is the municipal borders of a city define what you can write. And that is very central to how also initially the um, the municipal the municipal or the corporate body that governs urban space divided itself up let me give you a small example so um, at uh, around 1804 or 5 uh, the river shifted and uh, deposited a strip of land along the western borders of calcutta which uh, which is uh, and it ends with uh, the river hooghly or the river ganges passes through the western uh, borders of calcutta and um, so they didn't know what to do with that land. They were like, hey, does this land belong to the river department or the port department or does it belong to the territories department, which used to be a department before the coming of corporation uh, in the 18, 1858. So, uh, so then they said, oh, maybe a sanitary department can take over. And the sanitary department started depositing the city's waste and the offer and all of that to sort of fortify that land in the uh, first phase. But instantly there was a outbreak of plague in the ships and they then realized, okay, we have to really do something. And ultimately it passes on to the territories department after much consternation, whether river is the river or the river, 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 uh, river authority or the port authority should be in charge. And that's kind of interesting in some ways. So one of the things I realized is like maybe I needed to move beyond these arbitrary definition, municipal definitions. And I work a little bit with that. And uh, in my introduction, trying to understand how is it that uh, maps and cadastral mapping, zoning, all of that are central to actually understanding urban historiography are are, are kind of the visual visual representations that uh, sort of prefigure our reading practices when we go to the archive. How do I actually read against this kind of a visual literacy, which is a very cartographic kind of a visual literacy? And, and it is central for uh, to do that for urban historiography, especially in these mobile spaces where the land is not always fixed and the transformations in the river up uh, above and the delta below has a central way of reorganizing the space of the city. So I think it is precisely because of the, the river cannot just be an entity that I know uh, and I can, I can just uh, put it into a river territory, uh, river survey and leave it there because much of the uh, early, at least till 1856, 57, much of the River surveys were worrying about how to draw a margin in an Indian river and they would constantly write buttons. It is impossible precisely because the river was shifting so much. So the river's movement is central to the history of property in a city like Calcutta or in the Bengal Delta. So that's precisely why we, I needed to look, take the legal history of property, the environmental history of the river and impose it upon the urban historiography I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and in this introduction, you also... Uh, propose a new reading practice and you've mentioned the paper regime mm. and your alternative is uh, the Almanics. Mm. So why did you choose them? What do they offer to us as a as, as a way of reading? Mm. So Almanacs uh, was the once one way I could think about uh, uh, about the reading practice and it's a, it's something I want to continue to develop further. See what happens in an Almanac is Almanac is not is something that is actually attuned through to t- uh, tide uh, instead of um, uh, uh, instead of just being frozen in space. So, and and in a tidal landscape, one never imagines uh, land as fixed. And there's in a daily manner, the land uh, becomes bigger and smaller. And that was very very central uh, for especially the entire foreshore, all of the tidal landscape. And what almanacs allow us to understand is not only is this landscape seasonal, this landscape is also annually seasonal in the sense like post-monsoon, the landscape can change quite dramatically. So by using almanac as a lens, I came to the realization what maps are doing at this period is they are freezing land in a particular moment in time and then drawing it. And this is very central and I'm like, it's not some sort of a, just a vague philosophical abstract notion because quite a few of the property debate cases that I'm looking at, uh, uh, I was looking at in for my book was uh, the debates were like, when did you measure your land? Because if you measured it during high tide, 
there was no land and the uh, and if 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 the contiguous land is not affordable often the company east india company had rights to the land as the sovereign over non contiguous lands that might be close to your uh, property but if you went and measured it in low tide you probably could walk to that uh, piece of land which will be underwater for a certain period of the day and so what do you do with this temporality with which is a which is a which is an ecological temporality, but that doesn't sit very well with our mapping practices and the practices of deeds. So that was one thing I, I think Almana captured for me as a reading practice. And also in some ways, I wanted to use Almanac as a provocation of saying, how do we measure time that is both vertical and horizontal, that changes with the movements of the moon, the cosmology, all of that. So in some ways, I wanted to hold these three, two things together uh, and not, you know, in some ways as, um, uh, oh, there is this indigenous kind of vernacular way of understanding uh, that's that that's kind of this romanticized colonial difference or indigenous difference. And then there is this kind of bureaucratic, rational, scientific way of understanding. I wanted to find this kind of almanac forms that undid the property regime in the extremely mundane spaces, lower code district cases around property in various parts. And that's that that was my interest, not to see these as two kinds of uh, one a kind of arcane practice and one as this kind of a um, uh, rational colonial bureaucracy. And I'd say this with the complete awareness that this is not an unresolved fight. And I'll give you an example from the current moment. Uh, in 1970, for instance, in the Bay of Bengal, a small island was deposited by the river. And both Bangladesh and India actually laid claims to the land and, and went to the International Court of Justice and became part of a continental shelf ruling. And the whole debate was how long is the island because it would sometimes be two kilometers, sometimes be 12 kilometers. And what's very interesting is the case was settled in 2014, six years ago, but the island had completely disappeared in 2010. But uh, the, uh, the International Court of Justice in uh, Belgium continued to discuss this, about, discuss the island, although it didn't exist. So in some ways, Almanac sort of teaches us that maybe before the property regime, like property paper or the deed or the map, Tide is actually the biggest sovereign here as far as the presence and absence of land. And I wanted to use the Almanac as a provocation to constantly kind of discipline my reading or I, I should say undiscipline my reading. Mm -hmm. You've alluded earlier to the connection between drainage and colonialism. Mm -hmm. And that made me think, how do you differentiate between colonial and local environmental worldviews and cosmologies mm -hmm. when it comes to property? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the sources that you use to access that? Mm -hmm. So this is this is an interesting question. I think it goes back to something I was saying earlier. Uh, you see, we should, first of all, like... It is very interesting uh, about what we, what is it that we call local cosmologies? What is it that we call local environmental worldviews? And how is it I, as a historian, sitting in the 21st century, accessing these things from the 18th century? So often, one of the things is often we are accessing it through literature, um, through ma ma songs, uh, through anecdotes, through riddles, but they have been written down and handed down in the 19th century moment, at least for Bengal, when by when a lot of these um, um, uh, indigenous Bengali elites decided they needed to recover and note down their language and heritage that they thought was getting lost. So it was very much in this kind of a Victorian mode of knowledge gathering. So even if it is being done entirely by Bengali elites, we cannot forget the worldview within which they are located. That is that. That's one thing I want to flag. Uh, number one. Number two is uh, uh, also these local cosmologies are emerging very interestingly in the law courts, and I actually start doing that. I was like, these are the places where you see sometimes the falling apart of uh, of the British rationality because they are also trying to grapple with the fact that riverine spirits are constantly evoked in uh, cases, colonial court cases, or Hindu Hindu deities are making claims to landscapes. And they, the British bureaucracy actually doesn't uh, write them away. And I, as a historian, do not want to be the secular historian who will explain them away or kind of romanticize them. So I think that is kind of important. There's a couple of things, let me tell you. One was the British really liked to 
read uh, so when from the 1830s they started like sort of standardizing or codifying uh, anglo hindu law and anglo mohammedan law they were reading they chose a particular set of texts and they started reading and they did translate some of the embankment laws which was known as dhardhura which is about all how do you uh, how do you basically uh, navigate how do you, what do you do when when your land shifts but they did a very interesting thing they did a what i called a um, uh, selective reading of the text and a selective translation and a selective interpretation of the text so they would read the text and whatever felt very commensurable to roman water laws because um, british uh, water laws are pretty romanesque con- contrary to the rest of the common law stuff they would actually uh, um, anything that felt commensurable to the roman laws of, of uh, alluvian and diluvian they would basically translate and say these are the hindu laws so that was one set that was important uh, I, I went to there were lots of people who would bring in people who had deposition um, during deposition they would translate these fishermen boatsmen's uh, uh speech and for me that's interesting why did they feel the need to translate those speeches so they would uh, there was a particular case where a <clears throat> uh, uh, harbor disappeared in my first chapter i look at it and the entire uh, uh, deposition proceedings end with a person a british cartographer coming and saying you know we also need to keep in mind the fact that they said uh, the person who built the harbor forgot to do ablutions to the river spirit and the river spirit in a rage sent it down so that's one way that you see a different Uh, a kind of a reckoning with okay there is this world that we kind of don't understand and we cannot really like push it under the rug then there is a third way and here i actually uh, also looked at the question of language because i think language sort of sediments history in some ways and in bangla as i showed there are seven ways of talking about rivers relation to land it's eroding and erosion as a term which is both a geographical term and emerges in the legal archive uh for disappeared lands and marshes or diluvian um uh, doesn't capture the that relation and that 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 seven ways of talking about uh, how the river eats away the land as they call it that's the lower bengal delta is very central <clears throat> to which sort of for me indexes a particular kind of relationship and it's interesting how that gets translated into colonial law is there is a particular case comes to the court and they say you know the, we cannot use precedents of upper bengal delta in the case of lower bengal delta because these are two different ecological zones and this is something that we are realizing because of the particular way people are deposing and fighting over the land of the particular kind of cases then uh indian proprietors of especially agrarian lands are bringing to the court so uh, uh, for me that i think the challenge is how do we hold the 19th century victorian british world view colonial world view together with that the what we today sit down and read as indigenous world view native cosmology all of that together without romanticizing one or the either or without basically making the hierarchies of colonial knowledge versus indigenous knowledge and vernacular knowledge i i personally don't think there is any vernacular knowledge out there that's not mediated through the colonial archive or through people trained within a kind of a colonial framework of knowledge even if it is uh even if it is uh indian elites who are trying to write down these kinds of things have i answered your question yes yes i mean th- there is no such a transparent source to speak yeah. of and of course we have to think about how they were mediated exactly um yeah. the the book is divided uh, in three parts the first part is environmental consolidations uh the first chapter titled power and silt and the second chapter drying a delta in the first chapter you explore a moment when one of the early colonial attempts to construct a harbor for calcutta as you mentioned in the 18th century failed Can you introduce to us uh Calcutta as you uh depicted in the book uh and this project uh what are some of the analytical possibilities and questions this moment generated for you and how did that lead uh, as you pursue in the second chapter to the production of law and the architecture of ownership hmm. and that's very useful you know so i began my book by looking and this is what the almanac frame helped me book by looking at uh, help me kind of think through is the uh, um is looking at this harbor that was constructed about 90 kilometers south of calcutta 
in an attempt to connect Calcutta to the the Delta and the sea. Uh, uh, and the entrance into Calcutta is through the narrow river passage. And how do you get ships without being delayed was a very central concern at the time in Calcutta. So it began with this harbor construction case precisely because of two reasons. One was it was a failed case. It failed. And the failure, I think, actually reveals a lot about how power operates. And that is something I wanted to understand. And I also wanted to understand what does this failure index, because this is the first major infrastructural project undertaken. And it just disappears under the water like uh, completely. So this guy was trying to build uh, a harbor around 1776. Uh, and the East India Company makes a land grant to him. <clears throat> when when he asks for more 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 land, they basically go and tell. Uh, uh, they realize they send East India Company sends down two surveyors, and they come back and say that it's all water. I cannot even do a land survey. How do you even do a land survey? And it, it becomes this enormous fight. Uh, it's a thirty year old thirty year court case, and the court case is interesting precisely because. It gets debated in three ways. First one was like, is Lakam, who was actually trying to build the harbor, was he lying? Or do we or, or were our in, instruments insufficient that none of us could come back with exact measurement of the land? Or is it that uh, the landscape was so, so anomalous, so tidal, so movable that it actually made uh, this uh, Lakam into kind of a visionary thinker who was completely taken over by his imagination of a project that the project failed. And some people actually supported Lakam's projects. Many were detractors. But for me, what was very interesting is like, I argued that the case failed precisely because law did not have, or even a geographical sciences did not have a way to explain what was going on in that landscape. So for instance, Charles Lyell, who's considered the father of geology, who writes about erosion, hadn't published his book still 1830s. So there was a range of riverine activities happening, which were impossible to understand and which made me sort of move me into my second chapter, which really made me understand, okay, like before we can even tell the story of engineering a landscape and draining a landscape, which a lot of people have written about within colonial historiography, we really have to understand how people were grappling with this landscape. And here, legal history was very useful. And, you know, Lauren Benton's work is extremely useful over here. But I also realized what Lauren Benton uh, and even Renisa Mawani in some ways say is like, you know, um, geography or this kind of anomalous geography became a limit to lawmaking. But when you turn to a space like that, you actually see this this kind of a space became up, <clears throat> these kind of anomalous spaces, which are hard to define through your frameworks of property law actually became a space for making a lot of legal arguments about claims. So in my second chapter, I see the the same characters who are fresh from debating Lacan's lost property case are now faced with another crisis in 1804 and 5, as I said, and the river shifted and there was a huge strip of land along the problem, along the river port that was deposited. And it's prime real estate, the warehouses are there. So that's exactly where like, they were like, okay, like, there are interesting ways to make claim and the emergency provisions within law are enacted to make what I called the quasi-eminent domain claim. So two laws get passed as they are doing the survey of how to take over this land. One is the land acquisition law, uh, the first land acquisition law, which very much actually still is in um, in uh, in. Uh, use in contemporary India and to a certain extent in Bangladesh and the other law, which is called the Bengal Alluvian Diluvian Law. And I'll end this answer with saying something with a contemporary moment, this uh, BADA law, which is called BARA um, in Lower Bengal Delta, ha- had such a potential uh, uh, life, as a, as a huge potential impact on life in the Bengal Delta. Like if you were to go to parts of Bangladesh and India, they would say oh, that's a BADA zameen. Zameen means land, because the law has now become the name of these kind of mobile landscapes in this area. And that is what I really wanted to try to show that landscapes like this, instead of being a limit or being drained, actually were sites of productive lawmaking. Mm-hmm. And, and you pursue that in the part in the second part, legal maneuvers. Yeah. So the third chapter, notarizing positions, and the fourth chapter, commerce and land. Uh, in the third chapter, um, you analyze some property disputes, right? Mm-hmm. To analyze uh, and, and to highlight the meanings of riverine land and their transformation over a century. 
And in the fourth chapter, um, you draw a connection between the hydro uh, the hydrological history of the city to the larger economic and legal forces unleashed by colonial rule on infrastructural and town planning projects. If you can speak to us a bit about how do you make these connections between these uh, property disputes cases and how do you draw these meanings uh, from them? See, the first in, the, in chapter uh, three was very much, I tried to look at the afterlife of these two legal rulings. And there were there were two things that drove me to do that. One was whenever this uh, legal rulings come out or reports get written, um, historians often end there and just look at that. Often trying to see what the afterlife of the legal ruling was uh, is often harder harder to find. Exactly how is the law getting imposed? How is the law getting implemented? Uh, so I uh, so that was one thing I wanted to do, and I realized that there were twenty seven. Uh, cases that were objecting to the taking over of this new strip of land that was deposited and of which surprising then all 27 like some there were two europeans objecting to east india company taking over their land and rest were indians and uh, east india company doesn't compensate anybody but uh, hindu deity and for me it was like how do i understand this and of course the anthropological literature in this case is very rich where they have looked at how religious symbolism in South Asia is used to protest infrastructural work. So there is that literature that might help me understand. But I also wanted to say, why was so much ink spilled? And why is this the most protracted legal case? And why is the Hindu deity the only one to be compensated? So I used that to sort of raise a question about there are there was always the awareness that there are gestural claims on land. And here I draw very much from uh, uh, Empire Sudipta Shen's Empire of Free Trade, who looks at markets not just as a contractual space, but also a space where people are making various kinds of claims that go beyond basically the frameworks of the contractual market. So I try to say there was an entire world of uh, uh, claims to property that were ancestral, that were sociological, that were outside of the juridical economic framework of property. And this was a moment when that was being tamed and people were trying to actually paper over these things while they were being, they were very aware that they cannot control that recalcitrance. But this was also a site of kind of honing those skills of, okay, there is this ecology is allowing us to make certain quasi eminent domain claims and how do we push forth? And that was the thing I tried to do in chapter four. In ways, chapter four was the last chapter I wrote because uh, my chapter five, as you know, I talk about uh, uh, speculation and how <clears throat> swarms became both a limit to speculative property desires and also kind of like um, a, a good landlord or a good real estate developer was, a, was the person who basically drained the swarms to make uh, houses. And so in uh, and so the idea in the fifth chapter was why is it that when we saw swamps or bogs or water bodies we thought of them as land in waiting to be developed and so the fourth chapter in a way is what i called the intermezzo because it really helped um, me it really allowed me to make the connection from lakam's first kind of ecological speculation and early adventures with early kind of individual small scale adventures with these kind of uh, small bogs, marshes, attempts to convert water bodies into harbors, into the road, strand road that I did in chapter three and four, uh, into a larger project of how water swamps, canals were actually getting economized and developed through the city. So in some ways, that was a, uh, the commerce in land chapter does two things. First, it connects this ecological uh, speculation with the economic speculation of the chapter five of the 20th century. But it also tries to locate or in some ways blur the boundary between the early company states modes of infrastructural project with the British Raj's infrastructural projects. And I do not want to. And what I say is like it's often been read as very separate uh, modes of doing uh, infrastructure. One is very piecemeal unplanned, done by entrepreneurial characters who were working for the East India Company. And the other is very much in this uh, militarized mode that Vina Oldenburg and uh, and Ravi Ahuja has explored. But I said, no, if we look at it together, we actually see how both are embedded in one another and how the attempts were to sort of not so, so much militarize space and do the Foucauldian thing, but 
more attempts at economizing space. So it went from uh, going, how do we impose a new layer of taxation by calculating how water and the presence and absence of water could be profitable? How do we take some of these bogs and make it into canals, which then we can use for transport? How do we actually take some of these these acquisitive uh, uh, marshes, which we can then acquire, then we turn them into saying these marshes need to be developed. And every marsh then becomes this kind of land in waiting with all its economic potentials to be unleashed. And once we understand those links, we really un- uh, we really start beginning to understand why is it that the 20th century urbanization of be it Calcutta, be it Bombay, uh, became very much a one where the ontology of water was completely re- like repressed to centralize the ontology of land as the central way. Like reclamation would be the only way that we can move forward with urbanization. Mm-hmm. I like how you titled part th- part the third part, which is um, unhyphen real estate. Um, and in the last chapter, speculative properties, you've mentioned that you pursue the question of how speculation and speculative market in urban land in the first decade of the 20th century uh, was generated. Um, do you see that process as an inevitable, uh, inevitable outcome for the century prior to you analyze? Or do you think it's a, it's, it's a 20th century moment? Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, it, it was it an inevitable outcome? It was. Uh, it was a. I think it was a much more a, like. <clears throat> I see. I, I looked at a lot of historical contingencies that produce what it was, and in some ways, uh, there were three things happening. The uh, the British officials, especially after a new property tax regime was introduced in eighteen eighty one understood how to finally sort of make urban land pay. So there was one thing. At the same time, industries were expanding in uh, both like in Rangoon, for instance, in Bombay, in Calcutta. And these three municipalities were in conversation with one another. And as industries were expanding, a new stressor was coming into the market, what they understood as working class housing and the inability to provide working class housing. And it was the rent market debates that I ended with in Chapter 5, as you know. And the, it was very interesting how swamps emerge in the uh, rent market debate. And the one thing that uh, they end with is there are three kinds of rent they decide. There is the profiteering rent, which Indian landlords charge to the working class. There is a standard rent and there's an economic rent. And the whole idea was unless we drain the swamps of Calcutta, we are continuing to see profiteering rent. And for me, that was kind of interesting is like how uh, ecological or uh, environmental argument or in, was brought in, like exactly what Lakam was doing in the chapter one. He was bringing in and saying, look, this is a very dangerous landscape. It's a very, very dangerous space. Let me give you an infrastructural answer to the ecological variability of this landscape. And in a very interesting twist, but a very different kind of twist, you see, here is again we have like we have an economic problem going on we have a housing rights problem going on and people are basically making a claim to like housing rights and the way they answer is by turning to again an environmental anomaly or what they by then understand an environmental waste or a wasted space that need to be developed as a way to actually control the rent market and for me that was what i was trying to understand uh, what is it, why is it that the rent debates could have gone many ways and there was one guy, as you know, who was uh, strongly advocating for uh, like having a supply, establishing rent according to supply demands. There was somebody who was basically talking about shoes and housing as basic human needs. And we need to talk of, think of them in terms of need and economy. How do we place need as a calculable category? But what really takes precedence is how do we basically drain and the project of draining uh, the uh, the eastern parts of Calcutta uh, uh, and draining Bombay, both of uh, both these cities are very threatened by w- w- working class housing riots that might happen. Begin the project of draining and relocating, and that for me became interesting. But what one of the things I actually did not explore, I didn't get a chance to explore, and that would be the twentieth century histories. Most of the drained landscapes of Calcutta and Bombay are now prime real estate, not what my uh, municipal 
characters are saying like we need to drain those to relocate the <clears throat> workers out into those drained swamps so that is again that in that i think the trajectory that uh, south asian cities stick are very very different for say instance uh, american cities where it would be the drained swamps where the poor and the working class and the black housing would be so that 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 is something i don't think it was so much inevitable but it is a, a whole lot of contingencies came together to turn it into this and that's what i tried to explore but i think i have to think if it was in some ways inevitable and if it is that's what defined the 20th century history of urbanization i'm not sure yet uh it's 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 a project to be pursued, I believe, for the twenty first century. Uh, and and you touch on that on the current century in the conclusion, uh, disappearing coastlines. Uh, you you mentioned your literary background, and it really shows in this book. It's really beautifully written, and it borders the the lyrical, I would say. Um, and I would like the listeners to taste some of that. If you would like, please to read the um, passage from the conclusion. Thank you so much. You're very kind, Ahmed. So let me read this page passage from page 203 of the conclusion. In charting this drama, this book showed how surveys, pattas, maps, property deeds, leases, and reports cannot simply be read as disparate acts of documentation performed by the bureaucratic state, but instead existed in a continuum that attempted to represent space with one history, one narrative, a space uniform and flat. This was a space whose possible possibility of existence was only as property, property that could be speculated on and exchanged in a regulated market, paternalized by the state. Through the materialization of paper documents, these marshy seasonal sediments of the Hooghly River entered into the history of political modernity as an economic entity that could be numerically represented through measurement and value. The sedimentation of this history is also the history of the separation of the river from the city and a history of that space between the river and the city, between water and land, and how that in-between space was converted into urban property with far-reaching consequences. The colonial propertizing tendencies created a new market logic where the economic and the spatial aligned to produce land where none existed. This new spatio-economic structure, burgeoning network of credit, and an emerging politics of authority restructured the topography of the city, transforming swamps into real estate in waiting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I know you have uh, been committing yourself to many outreach uh, initiatives, as you've mentioned earlier, uh, during your uh, field work with the homeless populations. Uh, but also in this, in the States, um, you have organized uh, a workshop along with Professor Laurie Wood from Florida State University titled Ordering the Anthropocene, Law and the Environment in the Indian Ocean World in 2019 May. Uh, I would like to ask you, what were some of the takeaways from that workshop and which directions would you like the fields of legal and environmental histories to take, especially thinking of South Asia and the Indian Ocean? Thank you so much. And thank you. So that was one of the best conferences I organized, not least for some of the excellent papers I got to hear, as you know, including yours. uh, And I was quite happy to be able to bring in uh, Indian Ocean conversation that touched upon the French Indian Ocean that touched upon the Gulf of Persian Gulf that touched upon uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, so it was it was for me a huge learning point. So let me begin. One of the things we really tried to do is you know oceanic histories take uh, the long durée approach, especially since Brodel, and we are very very comfortable with doing that environmental history itself is also extremely comfortable with a long durée approach but when it comes to the question of law often the time frame of the uh, legal is defined by the time frame of the case the case file closes or it could be anywhere between 5 to 80 years and that's the end of it so for me the question of how the temporality of a, of the of the legal and the long durée approach of maritime and environmental history actually sort of our intention and what we can learn and what is exactly how how do we study law and environment beyond just legal regulation beyond uh, <clears throat> the way we've often been uh, looking at uh, 
often the approach to uh, environment through law happens through forest rights, through river rights, through the um, uh, giving and now legal personhood of the river has become very central within South Asia. How do we go beyond that rights approach to environment and think about the relation between law and em- environment in a ca- kind of productive way? Here I draw a lot from uh, legal geography, especially or from people who've looked at geography as various kinds of limits or sites of argumentation and geography as a way, a generative moment for law. So that was one. So these are the two things I thought were productive. And what I realized is at the end of the workshop is when we take the long to scale of maritime history or ocean, Indian Ocean history and uh, uh, environmental history and pit it against law, our understandings of the way temporality, the way we've decided, think, thought about temporality, like periodization in history kind of starts shifting, as we saw in so many of the papers, be it the paper on the various plantations across the Indian Ocean or on the infrastructure establishment in the uh, Indian Ocean. It also helps us understand, especially when I think of what you did, Ahmed, in your paper, the fallage and how the time gets completely broken down and economize for a, such a long period of time as various kinds of contracts and their access to law and their access to water so it sort of opened up from a really minuscule scale that i wasn't thinking of to really the long duree and i think that's where uh, we need to start thinking about uh, environment and legal history is just not just the question of time and how that then defines what is a legal evidence and what is evidence within Indian Ocean history or um, environmental history? What gets framed within such a temporality as a legal truth? And what gets framed as historical truths within environmental history, Indian Ocean history? So those are the areas where these are very, very similar words, but completely different when you look at it from a legal case file and completely different when you look at it from uh, environmental and Indian Ocean case file. And finally, I'll end with one thing that I came away with, especially also Sunil Amrit's talk at the keynote lecture is the question of archive. What is the archive of law? What is the archive of environment? What is the archive of Indian Ocean? And while they're all kind of distinct, in interesting ways, they, I think, intersect and depart. And that's where a lot of generative conversations can take place, I think. Mm -hmm. And your book beautifully does that. It takes the Indian Ocean also into the Delta and the Delta into the Indian Ocean to think about law and the environment. Well, Debjani, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you for joining us today. I would I would like to uh, close by asking you, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Thank you so much. Thank you. This was such a pleasure to talk to you, Ahmed. Uh, my new work, it's really at the early stages, as you know, but I am, uh, and it goes back to the question again of archive and evidence. So I am looking through a lot of uh, shipwreck cases. I'm processing this working through these shipwreck cases and these shipwrecks were coastal wrecks that happened from east all, all along the eastern coasts of the Bay of Bengal. And I'm trying to see how these shipwreck cases ended up, often these are cyclonic and tidal wrecks, always as coastal wrecks are, how they became a central way to sort of define what the oceanic and the atmospheric sciences of the 19th century would be. In some way, I want to write the history of, early history of climate science before it even became climate science out of an insurance archive to say, uh, to think about how much the financial uh, bureaucracy and imperial finance kind of define the science that was being born at that time, but not out of thinking about agrarian production as uh, Tithankar Roy and Sunil Amrit's work has done, or through thinking through how to control the monsoons, which from Kane Chaudhary onwards uh, people have been doing, but really to think in terms of why is it that uh, insurance industry found the Bay of Bengal, one of the most turbulent spaces as a site of profit making and it's it's a question i don't think i yet have an answer but to think in terms of what does this insurance imaginary what did the insurance imaginary do to this landscape and the science that we today call cyclone science oceanography uh, climate science how much that was born out of this kind of a financial imaginary and in some ways the impetus for the project really came from the post tsunami moment when uh, tons and tons of reports got published by 
Lloyds uh, and uh, Munich Re and Swiss Re basically marking out the Indian Ocean as the place that is the most underinsured where highest capital loss would happen and the highest amount of refugees would come out and and the whole uh, whole debate emerged as a security emergency kind of a and a profit uh, within this three matrix and i'm trying to look at the longer genealogy of that sort of a history in some ways i see myself actually also intervening in colonial historiography of science and saying there is an entire political economy within which this project is happening and we need to start focusing on that um, area that sounds like a fascinating project and i've i've listened to some of your papers and i'm really looking forward to it uh, thank you so much thank you for joining me today and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored empire and ecology in the bengal delta the making of calcutta published by cambridge university press this is your host ahmed al mazmi stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the indian ocean world <laughs>